0: Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, you will know this person from The Biggest Loser. He was one of the trainers for many, many years on the TV show. Also, he has done a lot of personal training and currently is still teaching and exercising and helping many, many people to get fit and lose weight. So this week, it's a welcome to Shannon Ponting. So now let's sit back. And have a listen to my chat with Shannon. Hey, this week in the beach shack, it's a pleasure. I've got uh, an old mate. We've known each other for a long time in uh, you know in the TV world and also in the uh, in personal training. Shannon Ponting, mate, welcome.
1: Welcome, thank you, Hopper. Good to see you, mate. You've actually broken my podcast cherry, mate. <laughs> Believe it or not, this is the first podcast I've ever done. Like, i was still old school. <laughs> <laughs> really, mate? Well, well, you know what?
0: You are just telling me before, you nearly didn't make it to your first podcast, mate. What happened? You ended up in hospital.
1: Not only do I not do podcasts, Hoppo, but I'm old school, mate. I'll turn up for work no matter what, you know that, at <laughs> the last minute. Um, mate, you're not going to believe it. I uh, On the 2nd of Jan, we're going up to Nelson Bay for holiday. I got the wife and kids in the car ready to go and... I've got five bikes on the back, three, three surfboards, two scooters, two skateboards, and I uh, go, okay, Daddy will just get out the back to tighten that nut one more time on the bike rack. It's got to be super tight. So I go and give it a bit, and the wrench slipped off the bolt and slammed my wrist into the pole that was sticking out, and there was a bolt there. So it literally just slashed across my wrist. Blood squirted out. I said to the kids, you better stay in there. Daddy's going to be just a little bit longer. Go to- I couldn't believe it. We go to the um, uh, medical centre, get four stitches put in. He goes, don't go surfing or get it wet for a couple of days. And I said, well, that's not going to be happening, champ. You know that I'm going surfing and fishing and diving. So lo and behold, (laughs) 10 days later, Shannon didn't listen to to the doctor and he's got blood poisoning. (laughs)
0: Fair
1: Uh, (laughs) dick. I just had a bad run, mate. I I got the fourth Vaxo in November because my father-in-law's got the cancer.
0: Oh, that's and no good, mate.
1: With six hours of getting the vaccine, I got the heart palpitations. Then three weeks later anyway, I got the bloody COVID. So, and and then I've done the wrist, and Now I've got the blood poisoning and I'm back in hospital.
0: <laughs> <laughs> mate, no so good, no good. We'll go back to the early days, mate, growing up. Tell us a bit about that.
1: I was thinking about going back to those days when we first knew each other when reality TV was a real thing, mate. It was actually <laughs> saving people like you did on the beach and like I did on The Biggest Loser. It wasn't <laughs> going to get the best butt implants out there and lip implants, and that's just for the blokes at the moment, isn't it?
0: <laughs> that's right, mate. That's right. Be I, bet that,
1: I bet those blokes have done some podcasts.
0: Oh, they would have, mate. They would have. Thousands, <laughs> thousands. <laughs> we'll mate, touch on that. We'll
1: definitely touch on that as we go. <laughs> mate, back in the day, Hopo, I grew up out west, out near Parramatta at North Rocks. Always been a mad sport head, always into my surfing. And that. even though we lived out there, Mum and Dad used to take us to the beach every weekend and uh, developed the love of the ocean really early to start, like the whole thing, uh, riding the, the surf ski, boogie boarding, surfing, snorkelling around the rocks and that sort of stuff. I just always you know, loved being in and around the ocean. And, mate, uh, what sports did you play when you were growing up? <laughs> mad footy head hop. Uh, uh. I loved me rugby league right from when I was a kid. And it was the one thing that I was really naturally good at. Um, didn't take me much practice or anything. It was just naturally good at rugby league. That's what led me into being a trainer. I sort of grew up through the, the development ranks and stuff, was playing for North Sydney Bears and, you know, I played uh, representative rugby league right the way through. And at seven, so I had my first shoulder dislocation Um. Had a full season of recovery after that and first tackle of the next season, it came out again. So my first shoulder reconstruction at 17, thought I'd be sweet, came back again, dislocated again, had another shoulder reconstruction at 18. The doctor sort of said, that's it for you. Yeah, The way that your shoulder is, it's done, no more rugby league. So I fell into condition because I was contracted with the Bears. The Bears were really good and said, right, you've got to stay here. We'll put you on as a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, and they paid for all my training in strength and conditioning and and in conditioning, in training, all your first aids, all your uh, strength and conditioning certificates. So it was amazing. Like the amount of knowledge that I gained at a really young age has been so beneficial in my career, following it through. And exposure to really high level working with elite athletes. So you know stuff that we did there that just seemed crazy in the outside world was natural and normal to us. And you employ those same philosophies and same skill set to people in the outside world. It just Gives, gives them such efficient and effective results. You know, then from that, I fell into mainstream gym. There was one problem back then you could work on the gym floor for 15 an hour, but you get paid 35 a class. So I thought, yes, I'm going to pay 35, get paid 35 a class, mate. And that was the golden age of Lycra. There is a, oh, yeah. there is a couple of photos around Hoppo uh, <laughs> of me in stripy unitards. Now, I don't even know if you, you know, he did have unitards in life saving once upon a time. Remember back that? in the back in the day, just yeah, before my time, there was yeah, hundred percent. Before your time, but I reckon I've seen a photo of you <laughs> one of of your own volition. <laughs> so anyway, mate, I had the I had the uh, the boys there and went into mainstream gy- gyms and, and as I said, it was fifteen an hour because personal training and that didn't exist then at all. This is sort of early mid nineties. Personal training didn't exist, and I just thought, right, that's what I'm going to learn to do aerobics, going to learn to do step. But I was that unco. I was so unco. People just used to stand at the back of the class and actually laugh at me because they're going, go left. And I go like this, that's right. And they go, lift your knee up. And I have my arm up in the air. It was just so bad. But I was so determined that I was going to make a career in the fitness industry that I just practiced and practiced and practiced. Had a a girl at the time who was an aerobics instructor who was super patient. And I literally couldn't even click my fingers on the beat of the music. I just couldn't hear it and practice and practice and practice until finally the penny dropped and then sort of made my way through the ranks as a gym instructor. Do you think
0: you just fell into it because of not being able to play football and you learn a lot from the professional side and that helps you when you went into the, you know, the PT training?
1: Yeah, it's wild. Like doing a couple of hours of training for us was nothing abnormal, you know, and you put people through a one-hour session, they were absolutely busted learning that that fine skill set and, and i guess an attitude too, hoppo of sort of knowing when to kick and when to cuddle is really important because you just don't want to be a hard ass for the sake of it, it can break people's spirits uh, in a team environment you've got lots of different personalities and lots of different aptitudes and abilities and it's really important that you tap into individuals and treat individuals the way that you need to to get the most from them you know people learn different ways some people are are visual learners they see a movement and they can perform it some people are kinetic learners where they where they see your movement in your body and they can um recreate that and other people learn through audio and imagery so you describe an image they can then rectify that um that same image recreate that same image but yeah i think you know it's, it's a in a professional level when everything has to click and results must be seen to be believed you can't fake it till you make it in, at a professional level, the same as we couldn't in Biggest Loser. We, you know, I always think, Hopper, it's a funny thing. Of all the reality TV shows, and the only one that had an infinite measure was The Biggest Loser. In every one of those cooking shows, you don't know that. You know, Matt Preston might think some food tastes like shit and he likes the person goes, oh, yeah, that's all right, mate. I, I loved it. And, you know, if someone in, in any of those love shows or anything like that, there's, there's, so nothing that's finite, it's all in the – and, you know, endearing people can make endearing judgments. Of, of all the shows, in my mind, ours, The Biggest Loser was the one that was absolute finite. Well, mate,
0: with The Biggest Loser, how'd that come about? You know, you were doing personal training and, you know, how then did you get the start on Biggest Loser?
1: So I – as I said, mate, it was just through dogged determination and and – commitment that I learned to teach aerobics by the time The Biggest Loser came around I'd sort of made my way respectively up to the top of of the fitness industry where we were running workshops Uh, I was a pump instructor trainer I was an ambassador for all different music companies writing choreography uh, presenting workshops and all that sort of stuff and Michelle and I actually knew each other 10 years before the show started Michelle came to Sydney and had actually lived with me and the girlfriend that I had at the time so we did know each other but the audition process was brutal there was there was there was hundreds of people the first time and then we, we turned back and there was 20 and then we get down to 6 they go right there's only 6 of you left you turn up to the next audition there'd be 20 and they go mate you're right in with a chance now we turn up again and again and again anyway in the end Michelle and I were the last two standing you know it was a dream come true for me obviously not only for stability and financial but to do what I love the most but at just such a grander scale and have a more profound impact on people. You know, you just, the amount of people that used to come up to us in the street and go, mate, you've changed my life, which is just through watching Biggest Loser, which was such an empowering thing.
0: Well, mate, that's oh, similar to Bondi Rescue. You know, people come up and say, oh, I've learned so much about the water and the ocean. And, and what were the contestants like? Obviously they were massive and some probably couldn't even get off the lounge and then you had to transform them into being able to move and and, and do the activities you need them to do.
1: Yeah, and it's it's a mindset thing. Hop don't don't believe the woke agenda that people are trying to wheel out there. You don't just wake up morbidly obese. It takes a a concerted effort over a very long period of time to transfer transform your body to the level of morbid obesity, mate. It's very unhealthy. It's very dangerous. And and in the next two or three years, it's going to be the leading preventable cause of death as smoking's phased out of, of Australians, which is a scary thing because it can be avoided, you know, and there's a, it's always a, a weird thing. On day one, as, as you sort of alluded to, so many of our contestants said, no, nah, no, I'm fine, I'm right with this, you know, I love my body, my life's good, my weight doesn't affect me much. And then as we go on and as we go on and as we go on and they start to lose weight and feel healthier, they feel more empowered, they're not gas going up the stairs. They're not embarrassed going out into public settings and that sort of stuff anymore. And on the last day when we they step onto the scales, we have to final a way in, every one of them to a T says, you've changed my life. I was total in total apathy when I started that I thought I was healthy and happy. Now I understand what you're talking about. And I always, you know, I, I just always sit back and sort of wonder with the celebrities now, you know, Casey Donovan's come out and lost a lot of weight in the last couple of weeks, she looks amazing and says, you know, I love my new life. It's the best I've ever felt yet. One or two years ago was in total denial saying, if you don't love me for the who I am at the moment, whether I'm overweight or not, I'm perfectly happy. I'm not. Now she's made this transformation. I think we start to see the true version of who she, who she is when she's alone at night. And when you stare into a mirror, she's probably got a better clarity of who she actually is. Now she's lost that weight, which is all, you know, I'm just so happy that she's done it and she can have that feeling because, you know, mate, I was thinking just before we came on, 33 years hop, I've been a professional trainer now. It's a, That's a very, very long time. The burnout rate for personal trainers is enormous, but it's my absolute passion and I'm not moonlighting as a personal trainer to be a TV celebrity. I'm not moonlighting as a personal trainer to get me to medical school or acting school or On the next reality TV show, it's just not how it works, mate. My absolute passion and what I love the most is personal training and helping people transform their lives. And, mate, on The the Biggest Loser, with some people, you you know, you go
0: hard on some people, some you had to go maybe a bit easier or or you just sort of
1: just gave it to all of them? Uh, It's – a bit of a mixed bag, mate. As I said before, the, the best skill you can have as a personal trainer is knowing when to kick and knowing when to cuddle. You definitely can't treat everybody exactly the same because if I um, grabbed you by the uh, scruff of the neck and said, Hopper, you dog, you're better than this, get going. Mate, I know you and your personality, you'd be right. Shannon, go go and have a good hard look at yourself and I'd fire you up And you want to prove me wrong. Exact same scenario, exact, exact same setting. I could grab somebody else and go, listen, you don't get going. And they, they break down to tears and you just wouldn't get the best from them. And I think that's a really important skill to be a great personal trainer, just not a good personal trainer, is having that empathy and understanding people and without them – like telling you what's going on, having that sense of what's going on in their head by the way they're articul- articulating their sentences, Why, by the way they're moving their bodies, having that that amped up sense of, of connection and understanding what to do. But, yeah, it, it, it's an amazing thing. Like to become morbidly obese, as I said, it takes a concerted effort. They didn't just wake up one day much to their protest and become hugely overweight and fat. You know what I mean? You can use the F word. Then as you start to peel the layers back and they get better and better and healthier and healthier, you can start to increase the load. I know, you know, on the first couple of days I was on there, people are saying, aren't you scared they're going to have a heart attack and die? And the the truth was I was. I got the understanding that it was more about the psychological part. There's a, a trip switch in their brains that will go off before their heart gives up, okay? And that's a weakness and a softness. As soon as they start to be under any duress or stress, I've got to stop, I've got to stop, way prematurely to their heart goes, gives up. So They're always going to look out. And then as they get fitter and stronger and fitter and stronger, you it, it, it can push them further and further and their, their tenacity and their commitment and their determination grows. And you've got that ability then to expect more from them and, and set benchmarks. And the same goes with my athletes, you know, the same thing I expect you next week to be able to run a 12-minute you know, four K or whatever it is. And they've got to hit those benchmarks.
0: Well, mate, with the with the the some massive weights that came into the biggest mm. loser, wasn't it? Like Yeah. It, 250 it, was the biggest hopper, 250 kilos. Quarter of a ton. Did that blow your way that how big because I mean on TV obviously you know we're watching it, we can see that, but
1: but in person, did that blow your way that how big these people are? Incredibly big timber. Incredibly big, Timmy. You know, and day one you're standing there in this, mate, this this forest of human flesh. It's just enormous. You know what I mean? You know, I'm always. You think you're a decent size, you know, 86 kilos and stuff, and I'm standing there. I felt like a mouse. It's quite incredible. Some really big people. But what I did learn on the show was hop that that a lot of that the reasons behind people putting on weight wasn't just gluttony. You know, some of the girls explained that the reason they'd put weight on was as a self-protection mechanism. they had sexual assault um, incidents as they were growing up. And some of the girls said, I knew from an early age that if I put on a lot of weight and I was walk- walking in a line with three of my girlfriends and I was the fattest and ugliest of the three girls, I'd be the least likely to get picked on. That's bloody heartbreaking, mate. It's horrible, you know. But it really opened my mind to give me an understanding of the justification and the the environmental reasons that some of my contestants put on weight. Not all of them, but some of them had a really sound reason.
0: And, mate, with the competition side of it, between you and Michelle, like you
1: had your teams, like how much did you want to win there? You always wanted to win. Oh, 100%, mate. Everything, yeah, everything goes into that. And, and it's not only just for us. We're both ultra competitive. But, it's um, also for the contestants too to, to, to have that win or lose feeling. It's important. It's a massive motivator to have a yes or no and have a, um, like getting your checks stamped, having a having a payday for the effort that you put in, which, as you said, it was absolutely brutal on these poor, enormous, um, morbidly obese bodies. But their bodies can take it and they're, um, you know, it was minimal injuries on the show people twisted ankles and things like that but there was minimal injuries as far as hamstrings being torn heart attacks you know it it was incredible the the medical breakthroughs that our contestants had were phenomenal I know you guys are still ultra competitive when you do your uh, pre-season fitness tests and that sort of stuff have you got them covered or they got you now
0: no they got me now I I try and hold in there mid, mid about midfield but um it's uh, always good. I put it on him now. I said, mate, if you
1: can't beat a, a 50-odd-year-old, you, you don't deserve to get a job. <laughs> yeah, every class I teach, I think the same thing, mate. <laughs> but, yeah, I think competition's a wonderful dynamic in all aspects of life. And, you know, for a lot of our contestants, it was the first time they'd been exposed to healthy competition. I know Michelle and I are ultra competitive. Uh, let me see. Uh, six titles to two, I think it was, mate. Yeah. yeah I'm glad you got Beautiful. your blue shirt. Yeah, <laughs> I got the blue shirt on for you today. <laughs>
0: But, mate, yeah. it was a phenomenal uh, show, wasn't it? It, it, it went for what, a, a long time. 11 seasons. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, 2006 to 2017. Yeah. Amazing, mate. Amazing time in life, mate. It was epic. Yeah, that era, I remember, um, you know, we're going the Logies together. We're going all the
1: Channel 10 parties and, you know, it was <laughs> a great era. It so good, mate. <laughs> remember what I used to say to you, Hop? You're an elite athlete. You've got those young blokes covered at this stage. You've got to rehydrate, remember? Yeah. Jeez, we're, Jesus, we we're, we're rehydrated, bud. <laughs> we, we hydrated those parties, I know.
0: Mate, <laughs> <laughs> uh, now on, on another note, 2010, I know you, you had a melanoma. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's what, uh, just another um, Shannon Ponton Luck story, mate. <laughs> 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 so we're in Bali. I was literally putting sun cream on my legs. And my wife goes, what's that on the back of your leg? It was like about an inch, inch down from my butt crease. And um, she goes, what's that? I go, oh, don't be silly. It's always been like that. <clears throat> Typical pig-headed male. Kylie goes, from the beach in Bali, she made an appointment at the skin clinic. I came home, lying on the, on the operating table. The bloke goes, "Geez, you're brown. And I felt like the biggest dickhead in the world because he goes, that there's a melanoma. And I said, no, nah, it's always been like that. He cut it out. The first time they cut it out, Hop, the cut was 17 centimetres long. Really? They found out it was a mel. They had to go back in two weeks later. And we were filming Biggest Loser at the time. They went back in two weeks later and cut it out again. This time it was 21 centimetres long. It had 21 staples in it. The melanoma was 0.6 of a millimetre into my skin. At 0.1, at one, you're in all sorts of trouble. That's when it goes into your bloodstream. So for the cost of two pieces of paper was probably the difference between me being here now and not.
0: Mate, it's uh, crazy. And, and just to be able to, you know, your, your wife picking that up, oh, you know, that potentially saved your life,
1: didn't it? Yeah, yeah, just one of those moments in time, Hop. And up until then, me, you know, I always got quite dark skin. I thought, oh, I'll be right. You know, I've never, I won't need one of those checks. And and just that idiocy and that that machoism could have cost me my life. So from, from then on, mate, I've been committed to crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's where my health is concerned before I need to, you know. After that, we got the skin checked and then I wanted to get a colonoscopy done. I didn't want to get a colonoscopy done. I knew that I had to get it done. and That's quite an intimidating thing, mate, getting a colonoscopy done. And, you know, they got the colonoscopy done and the the doctor was a good fellow. He came out and he goes, you know, you're right to do everything. Just train easy the next couple of days and see how you go and, I go, what about surfing? He goes, Yeah, yeah, as I said, you're right to do most things. I go, You sure, mate, because so I don't want to get out in the back get out the back and take on water. He goes, What do you mean? I go, Well, you've broken the seal now. I might be out the back, sit up on my surfboard and just go Like when the rubber ducky has a hole in it. Oh mate. He goes, it's not unusual for a man to develop a heart on in this process. I said, you don't know me, mate. He goes, I wasn't talking about you, I was talking about me. <laughs> but,
0: uh, yeah, later on, though, you, you, know, you went through um, some torturous years of injury, some ill health. Um, now, how did that affect you? And, and also mentally because, you know, we're so active and, and, and competitive and when something holds you back, it can really affect us mentally as well.
1: Mate, I'm always positive hot. Like even now in hospital, I'm busted up here and I got this bloody infection. It, it was excruciating. The blood infection is one of the most painful things I've ever had because it, it just attacks your joints and your nerves and that was horrible. And, mate, in my heart of hearts, I'm still happy that I went, got to go surfing with my kids every day and did the snorkeling. If this was what's in store for me, it's what's in store for me. I've had, uh, what, three, three, three full shoulder reconstructions, one partial, uh, full knee reconstruction. Medial stapled on two more times than that. Wrist reconstruction. I've had the, the melanoma taken out. You know, that's so many setbacks for me as a trainer to have had on the way through. And I'm just always super positive. I'm just going, mate, it's only an injury. When the time's right, the doctors say go. I know what to do to put the wheels in motion to get better. And, you know, every day that I wake up and someone hasn't said that you got cancer or something that, that's proper dangerous like that, I'm happy. I'm just always... Well, just bless mate that I'm so positive and you know, now I've I'm busted up, my fitness is gonna be dreadful, but I know that I'll just as soon as the time's right, I'll just start to tick it over and check my ego. Don't worry about what I used to do, don't worry about how good I was before because it doesn't mean anything now. You just gotta go back to the basics, go back to the bottom of the rung and then pick yourself up and, and, and as you get better, appreciate the gains that you've made.
0: And and when you're taking people for their you know, their fitness. Do you also, you know, that the way you just spoke then would well, instill into the same into them? You know, they're not only there to get physically fit, but it's also to deal with life in general.
1: Yeah, it's a really, um, it's a mental process. It's, it's uncomfortable and it's unnatural to get your sorry ass up and get yourself moving, to run out the door, to run for half an hour, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, and put yourself in a world of discomfort and then come back home and and be stiffer and sore than you were when you left. But the benefits are enormous, you know, but you need a certain, a certain amount of for, um, a mental, uh, sorry, mental, as as fortitude and metal as a person to understand that to put yourself in a place of dif- discomfort is beneficial. You know, and it's a, a question that a lot of people ask, do our contestants keep the weight off? And the answer is No. Not because not all of them, but not because the system's broken or the advice that we give is wrong, but because of the canvas we've got to work with. All those contestants have have sub uh, like um what's a word like um med- mental idiosyncrasies. I think's the best word for it. A little chink in that m- um, mental armor that's allowed them to become morbidly obese. And and those voices, uh, like in any addiction hop, are calling them back. Like alcoholics, you know, you can't just go and have one beer with your mate that's an alcoholic. It's not fair because you know once you had one beer, you're going to have two, you're going to have three, you're going to have four, and it's going to lead to a world of hurt. So our contestants, when they're with us, it's very structured and very guided. As soon as they're back in their own environments, that, that exactly what you're saying, those mental internal monologue is back again. Just have one chocolate biscuit. You know, you're only 80 kilos. They've done such a good job. You have one. Bah. And then they start and then they start and then they start. Once you start it, it's a slippery slope. Because you've got to remember that one contestant we literally have for one week, two contestants we usually have 14 days, and third contestant out is 21 days that we have. It's not enough time to break a lifetime of bad habits. You know, like you go to NA and AA for a lifetime to to beat the demon grog and the the drugs. It it takes a lot longer to facilitate those changes and keep them in people's way of life. That said, there's still some amazing tales of people that have got the weight off. Uh, And I'm still mates with, I wouldn't say most, but I'd say a fair percentage of the contestants. And the ones that I'm not mates mates with are most of the time the ones that have gone back to put the weight back on not because I haven't reached out, <laughs> most of the time I do, but because once you do, there's a certain amount of denial and then belligerence that occurs and <clears throat> it's back to the, like, leave me alone, I'm happy the way I am and I know that's just not true.
0: And you hear that a lot, a lot of people that are overweight always say, oh, I'm happy, this is the way I am and all that, but yeah, they're really just hiding behind it, aren't they?
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, with the new Woke Agenda, a lot of people don't want to hear that, but it's an absolute truth. And the reason I know that is because with 16 to 24 clients a year for 11 years, contestants a year for 11 years, it's a lot of people to put through your own analysis. Every single one of those clients or the contestants to a letter on the final day promised Michelle and Commando and myself that they will never, ever go back because they feel so amazing. And if, if I could give you know most people that are morbidly obese just a taste of what it actually feels like to feel free in your movement, not to be fatigued, not to be stiff and, stiff and sore, not to feel uncomfortable when people walk past you in the movies or in a pool, a um, plane um, seat, they would give up the grog, um, grog and food in a heartbeat to allow that progression to take place because it does feel that amazing. Well, mate, you did go on SAS. How brutal was that? I think everyone wants to hear, Hop, that, oh, when you get there and you get out, there's a producer there to help you and it's it's, a lot of it's for TV. It was absolutely ruthless. Absolutely ruthless, mate. It was brutal like I've never imagined. On the 28th of August, I was doing a backflip out of a helicopter into Lake Jindabyne. The outside ambient air temperature was four degrees, Inside the water was two degrees. Everyone else is walking around Jindabyne in full snow gear. I'm doing the breaststroke to get out. You can't actually imagine cold like that. First day was okay. Second day was not too bad. On the fourth day, we're back in the water again. This time it took 18 minutes to get out of the water. We had to make a mission. So no one put their thermals and that back on. We just ran off in our wet gear because we had to make the checkpoint. Halfway up the hill, I started to black out. I could see it. I could feel it coming. It was like getting drunk to the point where you're um blind drunk and you can't actually feel anything anymore. It was like that. And the the colder I got, the more I lost cognition and the more I lost my memory. Until I was frozen on top of the mountain and they had to change me, strip me off and and, and change me. My body core temperature was 34 degrees. It's like having a fever of 40 in reverse, mate. It was absolutely brute brutal. We went back, got warmed up. As you warm up, they got me in the back of the, the van on the way back home going, listen, mate, you've got to take your hospital. You've got to go to the hospital. I go, well, I don't know. You're the, the bloody medic, mate. You tell me. And they go, yeah, we're well, you're all right. I said, well, as I'm warming up, I'm feeling better, but we'll see what happens. So they took me back and I was okay. That night, staff called me up. To their room and said, listen, Shannon, I'm on the way up there. You got you're blindfolding they the holding like this. And I thought, mate, these blokes are going to give me the, the SAS Australia Victoria Cross for bravery. <laughs> We're getting through that hypothermia today. And my team's still winning. Because we've got we still made it to the end. We still won out of four teams, my team still won. And I thought they're just going to go, mate, you're amazing. How did you get to the end? They just ripped me a new A-hole. <laughs> I was so devout blindsided me. You're like a little baby up there, like a little kid. You couldn't even move. You couldn't even function. How embarrassing. Well, maybe if you had got a better quality snow year, I'd be all right,
0: mate.
1: But anyway, so he goes, next time it happens, you're off the course. All right. So lo and behold, hop next day they did the drown-proof one where we had to jump into a, a um, concrete tank in the middle of a bloody field that was covered in snow And you've got to go down to the bottom. It was 10 feet to the bottom. I know it doesn't phase you, mate. It's human fish, but to me, it's a bit bloody daunting with your hands and legs tied with rubber, like rubber bands. So you go to the bottom, you just don't make it down. You just don't make it to the top. So you're stuck in this horrible place where you start to panic. Obviously, once you relax, it gets better. But that wasn't the problem. That was okay for me. It was when I got out, we had to wait around again for another 10 people to do it. I started to get the hypothermia again. And at no stage from the night before to that morning had I even been warm. Everything on SAS just doesn't make it. All your kit just doesn't fit into the bag. All your clothes put on just aren't warm enough to stay hot, to get warm. All the food they give you is just not enough to satisfy your tummy. The next day, I started to get hypothermia again. Two days later, uh, we did another, I think, cart and stuff up and down the hill. I started to get the hypothermia again. On the last day, we got the uh, hypothermia again. It was really bad. I started black out. I said to James Magnuson, who's a great bloke, listen, mate, I'm blacking out again. You've got to just get me to the top. He goes, all right, just get to the top. So I sort of held onto his backpack. We went up to the top and I thought at this stage I'm going to tap out, right? I'm going to tap out. And he goes, listen, you're warm now. Just go home and get warm and stay to the next day. And overnight on that last night I sort of lay in bed and thought about it and I just couldn't face the cold again. The, the cold broke me, mate. Physically, everything else was great. My body was held held up really well, but I just couldn't face the cold again. It just it, it mind something me, mind rogered me, mate. <laughs> and it, it was amazing because I knew in that moment, in a moment of clarity, that I'd found my in my end point. Like as a man in modern society, very rarely are we tested to the point of your absolute limit. You know. And, and everything else uh, was was going so well, um, but I just couldn't face the cold again. I mean my, my body fat percentage when I came out would have been eight percent, nine percent. When I fight hopped, I cut weight and make 76.8 for my boxing for about three minutes while I weigh in. But it was a really empowering thing. like you think what we're in the in the snow in the coldest water, um, we're in the ocean there at, at Tathra which was horrendous. We're in the ocean in Tarthra. I think the ocean temperature down there is about 14, mate. And we had uh, three exposures where they do the human bridge, where you got to link together, go out backwards in the surf, and you just lay down like a human raft. And the waves are smashing over your head, and you're sucking in salt water and coughing, but you can't let go. That that was horrible. And everyone, you know, you sort of think, oh, if you get cold and wet, you get sick. I just don't think that's true, bud. I just don't think it's true. Like my body – had has never functioned as well as it did there on a thousand calories a day being freezing cold in wet clothes for eighteen hours a day and would you go do
0: that again or was it something that you didn't expect to be as tough as what it was
1: well you can only you can only try and imagine what it's like, mate. You go, oh, yeah, cold water, hypothermia, but don't actually know what it's like until you're in Lake Ginobon on the 28th of August. You know what I mean? You don't actually know what it's like until you're in there and then you realise how much your mind can transcend your body um, and how much your mind can rule your brain because it's a very unnatural thing and a very separate dynamic between your brain. Your brain, as my good mate, our good mate Dino, Uh, Told us, you know, your brain thinks one plus one is two, and it's a very rational, logical, functional organ. You know, one plus one is two, be here at this time, turn the video on, talk to Hop, discuss this, this, and this. It's about that. Whereas your mind relates to feeling, emotions, and movement. And, you know, Dino taught me to do the breath holds, which is the change my life. And, you know, in those breath holds, in those situations, Even after 15 seconds, 30 seconds, your brain's going, breathe, breathe, breathe. And your mind's going, shut the hell up. We've got this. And your brain's going, no, no, no. So your brain dumps all those chemicals uh, into your your bloodstream because it thinks it's dying. And your mind's going, this is great. How good is it? So you get the benefit of all those those chemicals that are designed to save you from dying, to take down your inflammation, to get rid of cancer and stuff, dumped into your body because your mind has a simple chance to rule. And that was a thing. In SAS, in a total world of misery, in a total world of pain, all you have is what's going on in your mind. Like some of those um, interrogation tactics, hot were just horrific. They put us in a room, blanked out the goggles, put headphones on with a screaming baby going wah, 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 and just sat you there in stressed positions. And all you have, because you can't see or any, hear anything else, is your own thoughts and as long as your own thoughts were were, were screaming louder than the baby coming in, as long as the force going out was greater, you could still keep your mind, otherwise it would would send you crazy and and you're just alone with your own, own thoughts and no one can tell you anything, no one can give you encouragement, you can't look with your eyes at anything else because your goggles are blacked out and you're just alone with your own thoughts. Um, and we knew timeframes that you'd be in there for 30 minutes and things like that, but you've got no concept of time. Um, And I realised that if I sing my kids' school song, which is, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine, if I sung that at a certain tempo, it took three minutes to do. If I did that ten times and counted with my fingers each one and started again and just sound, even sometimes I was doing it out loud, that I could focus on something. It's a happy thought. It reminds me of my kids, plus it also gave me a concept of time, which is imperative. I knew each one was three minutes. I knew that once I'd done five of them, I was 15 minutes into it. I only had 15 to go. It gave me a benchmark, you know, which empowered me in that situation. But did you,
0: after doing the SAS, could you imagine what it would be like for those
1: soldiers in a war zone? Can't even imagine, bud. Uh, My father's a Vietnam vet and, um, you know, it was very emotional. Uh, knowing what he would have gone through just to get to the start line. You know what I mean? Uh, I did the, uh, the Kokoda Trail uh, a couple of years ago. Mate, those poor bastards went through hell just to get to the start line. It was a seven-day march to get from, from Kokoda to the beachhead where the whole thing started. And it just what, what they went through, that was just to get to the start line to fight the Japanese. Was seven days of torture, blows with blisters and their feet being torn off, and oh, yeah, horrendous. You just, you know, you, you gotta thank the forces that we have and that we've got men and women now that go through what they do purely to make sure we sleep in our warm beds at night. And that's what I'm saying. Sorry, I lost my train of thought before. With all that being cold, being malnourished, we had a thousand calories a day if we were lucky, no one got sick. And my body had never functioned so well. No stage was my performance, physical performance impacted by a lack of sleep, maybe two hours a night, nor by being cold all the time. It was almost like I was hyper hop. It was almost like my my body was operating at a hyper level, at at an improved level because of the intensity of the situation that we're in.
0: Now, mate, you're still doing the personal training. Tell us a bit about that and and uh, you're on the northern beaches and see uh, if anyone wants to come and yes.
1: get trained by you, how they do it? Mate, I'm 30, 33 years, years in now, hopping it's all still the same philosophies that I've always had, mate. I'm very lucky. I still teach 12 classes a week. Right back, as I said, from the start those days, I've just loved my group fitness. I love teaching. So I still, still teach body attack. I teach spin, teach pump every now and again, uh, boxing, and then sort of the hit programs. I've got uh, six classes at Orange Theory at Mossman. I've got four classes down at the Diggers and then still one over at First that I've been with. Been there for over 20 years. Um, and then I do about 15 or so um, sessions outside as well each week. Right, amazing. You must be pretty, uh, pretty busy. And you're still doing a bit of your boxing as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still loving the boxing uh, hopper. I still fight, um, much of my wife's behest. So I've had two wins and one loss. Uh, I am not fighting masters yet. I find that a little bit uh, sort of um you know underwhelming to say you're the best of the, the the old blokes I still want to be in there um and I still think i've you know got the skill and can mix it with with younger people which it's a funny thing because you know at that young age uh, and I mean when you're going through you've still got that massive surge of testosterone you're sort of a bit uh a bit uh, penis and balls to get your way through it is that real right come on so for me, it makes it a little bit better because I know if I clip someone, to be, you know, they're going to come at me, and I know for me, it's a war of attrition. So if I can just cover up and have no anger and no no stimulus response to get back and want to go nuts, I can just suck it up and then wait for the timing. It gives me an advantage, and you only get that, you know, with a with a lot of practice and exposure to to those sensations.
0: Mate, it's um, you're doing extremely well, mate. Do uh, what you're doing now. Mate, at the end of the interview, I do my five fun facts. I'm going to throw five questions at you. So you can answer them however you want, yep. mate. The three Fs. The three Fs. <laughs> <laughs> mate, the first one is uh, what are the best and worst purchases you have ever made?
1: Anything that I buy on the internet. Hop, every single thing that I ever buy from a pair of Ray-Bans to a watch, to a phone, to kids' toys I've been jammed with. Everything is nothing like it appears online. Do not buy anything online. Mate, uh, cats or dogs and why? Oh, come on, mate, you can't see me. <laughs> is that a rhetorical one? <laughs> of beautiful little dogs. Uh, one little white Maltese Shih Tzu and one brand new little Maltese. Uh, and when Biggest Loser was sort of at its prime, mate, I was having my lunch. At uh, near the train station in our time and, and there's all these kids walking past. going, look! There's Shannon from The Biggest Loser. There's Shannon from The Biggest Loser. And this little kid was about seven years old. He goes, "Look, look at his lame dog."
0: <laughs> <laughs> God, <he'd be> <laughs> They're great kids. They they tell it how it is, <laughs> don't they? The kids. <laughs> oh,
1: can you imagine doing that at that age? But, uh, what are you most proud of? Uh, definitely raising my kids. Hop. Um, you know, they're all unique and different in their own way. And it, it, I know it's a bit of a, a passe thing to say, but it just, for me, it, it's everything now. My life changed a lot when I had kids. You know, I stopped surfing big waves and that took a couple of big hold downs, as I know you definitely have, mate. And there's there's always that little thing in the back of my mind that it's just not worth it anymore. I, and I, I just don't go big waves anymore. I sold me Harley. I just don't. Before, I'd never thought of it at all, ever. But now with the kids, I've just got that little thing in the back of my mind that goes, you know, you got to be a bit more careful. So raising them, you know, they're all all really excelling in their sport, which makes me super proud. And I think it's a result of the time that I put into them when I was young. Um, sorry, when they were young. I, um, I'm always present with my kids. When we go to the skate park, I don't just drop them off and sit there on my phone, Facebook and my best BFFs and things like that, mate. I'm still dropping in on the skate ramps with the kids on my skatey and scooter. You know, I'm still learning tricks. I'm still doing that with them. I still surf with my kids nearly every day. I coach both both my boys in rugby league. I go to every game of my daughter plays a netball, to go to dance with we, we practice stretching at home. And it's it's that um being connected and being present with your kids and and and, and being active with them. That's what I'm most proud of is that, that that's had such an, a profound impact on their characters and their personalities to this point.
0: Great, great stuff. Now, what's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week?
1: Mate, the, it's it's wonderful that my blood markers were 0.07 this morning. My blood pressure was somewhere between 135 and 120 over 80 because I've been in this hospital room for a week and that's all I've seen and read, mate. <laughs> 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 Mate, what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? <laughs> everything, everything from the 80s. Yeah. I just I've mad flashbacks straight back to so many happy times. Anything from the 80s and, and the 80s tragic. And I love 80s trivia for music too. I'm always asking, remember who sings this? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Mate, it's um, same with me. 80s is the. Oh, the 80s, oh, era, mate.
1: We grew up in that era. Midnight Oil, um, Psychedelic Furs, The Jam, Sex yeah, Pistol, yeah. yeah. Dead Kennedys. Oh, oh, yeah. mate. oh, mate, all of it in I excess.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mate, mate uh, it's, it's great having you in the Beach Shack, mate, in the, uh, on the podcast. So we'll have to catch up soon
1: and uh, have Is a it, beer. I just got to tell your listeners just one little thing. I remember um when I got married, you did mention that 10 years ago, and my wife and um we specifically asked for, D, uh, for Dino and Maxie to walk my wife off the boat. Yep. Now, they said because you were the boss <laughs> at Bondi Lifeguards, you punted Maxie. <laughs> mate, it could be true. And I came <laughs> along and uh, I think Dino and I did the honour. The honour. The honor, oh, it was so <laughs> just joking, of course, mate. But that's, that, that's what Maxie told me. Maxie did tell me <laughs> that. So you might want to put him on paper duty or something on the beach soon. Yeah, mate, I'll
0: make. I'll, I'll, you know what I'll do? I'll get him to pick up all the rubbish on the beach next shift, I reckon.
1: <laughs> Jeez, that was a good day, wasn't it, mate? Just so everyone listening knows, well, I, my wife, one of our friends, had a beautiful big boat uh, and she didn't want her dad getting her off the boat. So she asked uh, Hoppo and Dino to get them, to, to take her off the boat and walk her down the aisle. So the boys got up their shirts off. <laughs> embarrassed me walked down the aisle and we proceeded to have a, a, a rather good night after that
0: mate it was a great that was a great time it was a privilege mate to come and do that yeah thank you so much it was great
1: <laughs> right Shen uh, thanks mate we'll uh, catch up soon thank you so much I'll stay well bud
0: now let's go to Beach Banner Yeah, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got Matt Hasty in again. And mate, uh, how are you? Good, Bruce, and hello
2: again. <laughs>
0: Growing up, you would have played a lot of sport on the northern beaches. What what sport did you start off with?
2: Mate, swimming was my um, first sport. Yeah, Mum and Dad used to, and took my brothers to swimming lessons at the age of three. Swam and t- pretty much full time until the age of seventeen. So swimming was my first choice, and then. Obviously, got into nippers, and then surfing came along, and then after nippers, I uh, was playing soccer, and then soccer went into rugby, then went to rugby league, and then back to rugby, and then I retired two years ago.
0: So, what was that? What was that experience like? Like going from soccer, probably a younger age, and then into rugby.
2: Yeah, soccer. I started it when I was seven till I was fourteen, and then fourteen into. Yeah, rugby. I didn't really know too much about it. I just, I was just keen to mix it up. And actually, I was quite blessed. Unfortunately, I had a um, bit of a big boot. So um, one of the boys at school actually saw me and said, you should play fullback. You've got a bit of a boot on you. And I said, oh, yeah. So I went joined the local Newport Breakers and, yeah, paid rugby for the next four years, yeah, which I love. Won two, two grand finals, lost two. And then... Um, yeah, when I was 17, my assistant coach at rugby, um, his best mate was the head coach of the under-17s at the Manly Seagulls League. He said, you should come along and try out. And I said, oh, yeah, i would never played a league in my life. had no idea, you know, how to play the league. All I, all I knew was hit it up, play the ball, hit up, play the ball. So I went along to tryouts. There was 40 of us, and only four made it through to the pre-season train-on squad, and I got picked. So... <laughs> What were you and, playing at? The forwards? Oh, no, I was fullback. The backs. Right? Fullback? Was fullback, yeah, back, back, yeah. We went through preseason training and I had to cut 12 players from the pre-season squad. Yeah, and I got picked in the, uh, called the what was the sg Ball squad. First game came around, didn't get picked on the sideline because I was a rugby player. And then I played every game after that and ended up winning Best and Fairest Award of that year. That's
0: pretty good. <laughs> any... any um... Players you played with then that went on to play first, great.
2: Ah, uh, yep. So, daily Cherry Evans, he's the current halfback for, for Manly. Kieran Foran, he was the eight for Manly, now he's at the Titans. Uh, Darcy Lussick is another one. And Jamie Bura, he's another one. They're the only four I can think of off the top of my head. But yeah, no, they're all good fellows, good experience. It's great.
0: Well, you probably come through with the tough. Tough group though, so yeah, they're all, yeah. They're all established first graders.
2: Oh, I know, right? And then they mainly signed me for two years. So I played Jersey Flag and then the under 20s, and then yeah, I put on too much weight, lost my speed, and they showed me the back door. <laughs>
0: <laughs> who was you? the coach? Um, who was the
2: coach then? So we had an ex Parramatta Eels halfback, David Penner. Yeah, I remember that, David, Penner. David Penner. Yeah, he was um, my coach for all those years actually. But yeah, no, it was it was a good good experience because we used to travel with first grade. So every pretty much every game Manly played, we would play either the game before or two games before. So being in the dressing sheds and being around all those first graders, like your Brett Stewart, Steve Mattiay, Anthony Watmell, was you know very was the, uh, was
0: Steve Menzies around then those days. Was yeah, he, he was.
2: was yeah. he was at the back end of his career. Yeah, yeah.
0: And who was the the first grade coach then? Was it Des Hasler back then or?
2: Um, it was. And Jeff Toovey was the assistant. That's yep. right,
0: Jeff was there for a
2: while too. Yeah, Toob's used to sort of yeah, he used to pump us up before games, actually sometimes. It quite scary. <laughs> it used to go ballistic. Oh
0: mate. You're good old manly. It's not that ain't not as good as the roosters, but uh
2: No, nah, but I was there when they won the L8 <laughs> 08, 08 final, uh NRL Grand <laughs> Final. So no, nah, it was good. No, nah, like I said, it was a good experience. It's not you know yeah playing at those big stadiums, travelled New Zealand, go all over. That's cool.
0: And then was it tough when the, you know, when you, you, you couldn't play football anymore? It was it a, a tough period transitioning into, you know, lifeguard and also just back to, you know, general life?
2: Yes and no. Um, I'd love, obviously, being in a team environment, playing footy, winning. I was a goal kicker. I used to love kicking goals. I used to make, you know, used to win some games and such an awesome feeling kicking that goal to win the game and telling it's just stopped. However, my back's just had it. Yeah. Waking up every Sunday morning, it feels like you've been hit by a you know, a train. Couldn't walk. And was it that from
0: footy or is that just yeah, something
2: from, that- just from footy over time, yeah. Just my lower back just gave way. And getting corked legs, can't walk, ice it, you know, it's not fun. <laughs> it's fun but it's not fun. <laughs> Yeah, it all looks good, doesn't it? When uh, you uh, watch it
0: on TV, but you don't see the the days after the big
2: games that they play. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. So, you know, I do I do head up to the local rugby club and watch Newport every every so often, but yeah, no, I don't miss it.
0: Well, well did you find much difference between the impact of rugby to the impact of
2: rugby league? Oh yeah, I used to get belted in league, just just smashed. But with rugby, you can kind of run around him. If that makes yeah, sense? And I'm fullback, so yeah. I used to run like on, on the side and just try and dodge that head-on collision. But yeah, league was definitely tougher. Yeah. The impact for sure. Yeah.
0: Because rugby's sort of a bit slower, isn't it? You've got the balls, it slows the game down a bit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a right, which, kicking.
2: Yeah. yeah, exactly right. You can have the ball for 30 minutes without giving it to the opposition where with league, you've only got five or six tackles really and you've got to kick it downtown.
0: So um, you're still a Manly fan?
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah.
0: What, what about c- rugby? You got moringa R- and Manly on, in in rugby on the northern beaches.
2: Yeah, look, I don't. I got obviously I love my Newport Breakers, my local team, and then yeah, we go moringa Rats, and then yeah, I don't nah, don't I don't go for Manly Marlins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, nah, no way.
0: Well, I grew up with the Rangick Ramwick mate, which were uh, in those days were basically the Australian team.
2: Yeah, fully. Yeah, the Allers um, and, and all everyone, that. Had everybody there. Eddie Jones, yeah yeah yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember a story with um, even when Chris Whitaker was playing for Randwick and he was playing for the Waratahs and he was the reserve halfback for Australia and George Gregan was the Australian halfback. He came to Randwick as well but he was playing for the for the Brumbies. So in the Super Twirls back then, they, they were playing in – but when they came back to Randwick to play – Chris had to go back to second grade, and George Green was playing first grade. So you had the the second, the backup halfback for the Wallabies, comes back to to club rugby and has to play second grade.
2: That's a uh, wow! Imagine <laughs> that. That's it's,
0: it's it I to... And yeah, that, that yeah and, and uh, back then it happened with a lot of the round. Week. You know, even the forwards they'd they'd come back and.
2: I guess what, it's a bit like Sydney Uni now. They've got a lot of Waratah players. Yeah. And they play the Waratahs all year and then they join Sydney Uni right at the back end of the season and then they just win. Win the semis, win the final and, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's crazy. Yeah.
0: All right, Matt, it's uh, good to have you in the beach shack, mate. It's uh, it's good having the chat and I'll, we'll see, catch up soon.
2: Sounds good, Bruce. See you down the beach. Cheers, mate. Cheers.
0: Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Sonia, and she's from Adelaide. Hoppo, when will Bondi Rescue's new series be back on TV? Well, Sonia, uh, we've just uh, about finished filming season 17, so it should be coming out uh, this year. I'm not sure on the exact date yet, but probably around April um, generally is when it comes back out. So uh, stay tuned and it will be back soon. So thanks everyone for listening and I'll catch you all next week. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's A Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today beach fans, stay safe and swim between the flags.